hello. hello. This is the part hello. where we say hello. Hello. <laughs> Welcome to Index for Continuance. Uh, this is Hillary Plum. Um, I'm Zach Peckham. Hi. I sounded like I didn't know who I was. I, um. I sounded like I didn't know where I was, so that's good. Uh, today we're going to talk to Rebecca Wolf, or we talked to her in the past, but here we are now. In the future. And we have a few index terms to share in advance of our conversation. Yes. Do you want to start? Yeah, I'll definitely start. Um, in keeping with our uh, discovery, or my discovery, that um, numbers come before letters, we'll start with 90s, the 90s, uh, which is something that we talk about a lot, um, or you know, one of our, one of our central uh, points in this conversation. Uh, the 90s, referring to the decade right before the end of the 20th century. <laughs> the, the moment that was the end of the 20th century, <laughs> wherever that was. Um, but I, th- I don't know, I feel really interested in this aspect of the conversation because I feel like we are not just us personally, but maybe culturally like a little extra haunted by this era right now. Um, and there are, I just think some curious, um, you know, if, if we want to be academic about it, like sort of political aesthetics that, you know, come up from this that I think probably inform a lot of what we think about when we think about, um, or talk about independent or small press publishing or just like art making in general. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm glad for the. I'm glad for the conversation uh, to be like a little rooted in that. I think so. We talked, Rebecca um, founded Fence, the journal, and then eventually Fence Books starting in 1998. So we talked to her about kind of the roots of the press and in the ideas of the indie of that time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's like, I feel interested both to excavate the 90s, like what, what that term indie meant then um, and what it's come to mean now or right. how its usage now relates to that original originary usage <laughs> and the problems with it. You know, so maybe first like to say that we're not we're not interested in some pure nostalgia toward the 90s, um, but in kind of excavating that and excavating the contemporary interest in it because there is a lot of like media interest now in the, you know, in sort of like looking back on like Monica Lewinsky and Britney Spears and sort of like this kind of self-satisfied corrective, you know, and in, in having enough distance from that time that people can feel like they um, can now uh, say they would have done it better. <laughs> um. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. And I, I, yeah, I wonder that, about the, right. It's not, it's not nostalgia, but like, I don't know. I wonder the extent to which it, it's being almost looked at in this like hopeful like mm-hmm. almost uh aspirational like instructional way almost to be like wait though did how'd we do it then <laughs> maybe yeah i mean i don't know maybe maybe this is too for me a little too like shaded by you know the sort of like the way that our like media landscape has been evolving it feels very rapidly away from like certain really um important you know, platforms or like, you know, modes of communication that uh, were huge turn of the millennium, you know, technologies. Um, Like, I guess I'm mainly talking about Twitter, but, you know, all that that kind of um, 
implied or otherwise entailed for like building communities or arts communities and especially maybe um, you know literary scenes uh, you know as as it feels like those things are, are changing and our awareness of them and their shortcomings is like becoming a little bit more uh, widely just like accepted uh, yeah I just I wonder the extent to which like culturally we're like looking to that period to be like oh well how did how did we do this before this Yeah, uh, was everything, <laughs> you know? <laughs> well, especially like an idea of like independence or privacy or like scenes that had some independence and privacy, which you like can't on social media, right? Because yeah. they are like, they fundamentally, they do belong to a big tech corporation mm-hmm. and everything that happens on them is, is influenced by that, right? Yeah. So if we look like looking back to the dream of the 90s, I think does mean looking back to some idea of like, privacy like a network that was not the network that we've come to have um yeah yeah and maybe maybe that's the i don't know to think about what independence is as like a value you know um which is maybe separable from indie (laughs) i don't i don't know you know but yeah maybe those are those are related in important ways so yeah 90s the, the 90s. 90s, um, comma, the. Call in with your thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> um, and how, how it all ended, what went wrong. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, how do we judge an era and its dreams by its legacy and failures? Um, <laughs> these are some questions. Uh, our next term, relatedly, I, and we were talking, you know, before we, we started recording about how these terms all seem really entangled with each other. Um, yeah. And... So our next term is a collaboration, um, which, of course, is like a fundamental mode of the small press um, is ways that small presses work and need to work as kind of an ethos and value that they have that they would be collaborative um, and also that they're collaborative with readers or with a community. Right. They're not um, just kind of outward facing. They're not removed, et cetera. But also as a way that small presses die. Right. Like is mm-hmm. the struggles to collaborate, the failures, like inequalities that manifest um, or that were there all along and then break the project. So um and we talked to Rebecca just a little bit about her experience and in, in making being in fence as a site of collaboration. And also we can note she's, um, you know, she's handed fence off to um, Jason Zuzka and Emily Wallace Hughes and a bunch of new editors. So there is a kind of profound collaboration in that like she made a project and now it's with other humans. Say, like, is that the yeah. ultimate collaboration? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah death is the ultimate collaboration. No. <laughs> like with our successors. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, like, this is yours now. Yeah. <laughs> But I feel like I've, you know, that seems good to note that just like the project continues in other hands and new visions and Mm -hmm. and shapes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah. And I like the, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, we also think a lot just on this podcast or we talk a lot because we think a lot about like community, right? Um, and um, not just because these are, are, are near each other alphabetically. Uh, I wonder about, you know, the, some of the, maybe some of the similar complications that we trace or like track through that term community and its application, um, you know, the extent to which maybe there are like echoes in like collaboration and how we think about it. Because like, yeah, it is totally like, I think it is, if we're trying to like map out what like small press values are, collaboration is part of that, um, just like community is, but also like once you get into that, right? Like uh, things can get like kind of complicated and fraught. Um, and uh, sometimes it's the, I don't know, the over, 
I don't want to say like over collaboration because I don't know what that is, <laughs> but yeah, it's in, also in the collaborative process that things do die um, or otherwise like become muddled or change into another thing or, or whatever. So, Or like um, the problems of the world show up like again in like the heart of the the independent thing yeah. you were trying to make, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. where like, just like replicating these structures or something, not to say that's what like fence did or has done or what small presses oh, no. always do. But like, I think that that does tend to happen. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is, which is weird, <laughs> but not cool. Um, the other term are, it's actually, I don't know. This is a compound term, uh, a phrase, I guess, uh, but we're, we're sticking with the rules of the index, which is uh, the alphabet. Um, cool and weird uh, together, right, as a kind of, um, not like necessarily a spectrum, right, but certainly mm-hmm. two, two poles on some kind of like map of like uh, ideological and creative, like, you know, values or goals or qualities that... <laughs> We, 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 we talk about um, trying to, you know, thinking about like the formation of fence, right? Um, which uh, Rebecca, I think, really generously like describes and like helps to like, maybe in some ways like disambiguate, mm-hmm. right? Because um, even just like the word fence is related to it, but maybe not in the ways that I would have like assumed, right? Um, I don't know. I feel... I feel tempted to not spoil it, <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're gonna get into it. <laughs> yeah, but cool and weird uh, are are two words that are part of that, um, and that we we talk about a lot. And then, I mean, again, before we uh, recorded this intro, we were in a a, a crisis of <laughs> trying to understand for ourselves and uh, the world cool and weird. Um, and it's just it's interesting that these these terms that feel very like important. Um, are also like so hard to hold on to. Yeah. Uh, and maybe to your point about the world showing up in your in your thing, <laughs> the world showed up <laughs> in that thing real fast. <laughs> I think we were talking about too about these are values very much of the '90s. Um, you know that were that are maybe less salient now, but also are like maybe structuring like what is cool or what's weird, and then. Um, <laughs> we were thinking a lot about the difference between feeling weird or like a weird, yeah. like a psychically weird feeling or weird experience or, and then being weird, like, right. like the problem of being weird. Um, so we're, I think I'm going to make a pledge that we're going to keep coming back <laughs> to these terms yeah, and we're going to, we're going <laughs> to get to the bottom of it. Yeah. <laughs> We've been cursed and, but we have to see it through. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we're going to do that using the tool of email, <laughs> which is our next term. Um, just because we ended up talking to Rebecca about like fences, um, emails, you know, kind of the more recent era of fences, emails, and just like email as a tool of the press and email as what's become like started as a kind of intimate kind of correspondence, right? Like a mm-hmm. way that you talked one on one to people and then became part of like branding, newsletter, you know, like all of that, like, it, like so many um things that previously seemed like private or that they were a more immediate form of relation have become a, a way of like branding or, or business relation or um, kind of performance in some way. And so we touched a little bit on that with email and I was just remembering 
you know, my own first emails, <laughs> which I, <laughs> when I was 16, I used to send a poem I wrote to some friends, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> that was like a dream of email. And now yeah. um, it's destroying our lives. <laughs> it's destroying our lives so entirely. Oh, God. Um, our last term, I guess, is what we should yeah. go to now. <laughs> which is good. Because I feel like I don't have the the language for, for how I feel about email. Um, but our last term for the index for this episode is, uh, is, is language. Uh, or post-language. Uh, lang- language poetry, specifically. Um, which I sometimes see as uh, la- all the letters with these little like squigglies between the L and the A and the N and the rest. Um, which I am, you know... I'm not an expert. I don't know why those even appear there. Um, send us an email and explain it, please. Um, but this comes up, right? Like this particular movement in, I mean, I, I, I would call it like American poetics. It seems like a very American moment in the people that are associated with it. Um, you know, are, it's like very California, is it not? Or am I, am I out of my element in... I think San Francisco and New York I'm, I'm looking at the po- at POFO oh! right now I'm looking at POFO but I would have said California also it, just, it feels like a very California yeah. thing but maybe it's just that the people that I most associate with it like Lynn and Ginny are yeah. very California people yeah yeah um I'm gonna I'm gonna read like one sentence from the Poetry Foundation and then this little bit of Lynn Hagenian's essay, The Rejection of Closure, which is from the early 80s, which I I don't have any like authority by which I'm going to declare this a canonical <laughs> work of language <laughs> poetry. But to me, it is the one that grounds me or that I think about like a quick way to like lay my hands on some of the things that that movement was about or, and that, you know, um, it, the influence of language poetry was about. So... Okay, Poetry Foundation, quote, taking its name from the magazine edited by Charles Bernstein and Bruce Andrews and language, and it is spelled with the like little equal signs between the letters as threatened. So um, language poetry is an avant-garde poetry movement that emerged in the late 1960s and early 1970s as a response to mainstream American poetry. Um, and then it's very much associated with small press, um, you know, with these kind of like alternative sites of publication, um, you know, that journal, some chapbook presses, et cetera. And then, you know, in this Lynn Hagenian essay, I'll just read this little tiny passage that I think of because I think it gets a, some of these questions of process, like collaboration and process and about um, collaboration, which is like an idea of that that writing is a place where readers and writers collaborate and is not a place, uh, you know, of the writer's sacred, central, unending power. So this is all, you know, in the wake of deconstruction, post-structuralism, et cetera. Um, So this is her essay, which is about, like, open text versus closed texts. Um, And she says, quote, we can say that a closed text is one in which all the elements of the work are directed toward a single reading of it. Each element confirms that reading and delivers the text from any lurking ambiguity. End quote. And then later, (laughs) not that much later, like on the next page, 
<laughs> quote, the open text by definition is open to the world and particularly to the reader. It invites participation, rejects the authority of the writer over the reader, and thus by analogy, the authority implicit in other social, economic, cultural hierarchies. It speaks for writing that is generative rather than directive. The writer relinquishes total control and challenges authority as a principle and control as a motive. The open text often emphasizes or foregrounds process, either the process of the original composition or of subsequent compositions by readers, and thus resists the cultural tendencies that seek to identify and fix material and turn it into a product." End quote. <laughs> <laughs> so I think you'll see how like our conversation with Rebecca kind of extends from some of those ideas. Yeah. And cool how, I mean, we, we, we mentioned this um, right before we, uh, we smashed the red record button, but there's a, there, in the, I don't know, I guess continuing this thought about how all of our terms are so, like, sort of tangled up um, or, like, you know, networked uh, today, you know, there's a way in which this, like, aesthetically, right, like, um, just invokes, like, collaboration, right, in that, that method of reading is, like, fundamentally collaborative, which... Um, I feel like is is cool. I don't know. All these things are the same thing. <laughs> Together, while being different at the same time. Um, did I did I ever tell you my my story about this essay? No. Well, you all right. You gave me this essay. Oh no. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's your fault. <laughs> um, and uh, when I don't know, we we had some conversation, and you're like, I, I don't know. I was probably having some some. I don't know, some kind of some kind of MFA crisis type thought of just like, ah, does, does, does this need to be legible? <laughs> you know, like, what, what, am I, what am I doing? What do I want to do? What, how do I feel about that? Um, and you gave me this essay, and um, to your credit, like, I, I mean, I find it, I consider it, like, formative. Like, it was, like, a very, like, helpful thing at a time when, like, I was, I feel like I was trying to think through uh, some of these things. Um, but the uh, the funny story is that I was in a workshop at the time, and uh, everyone had to bring in like one piece of um, either like poetics, like theory, or like Ars Poetica, or some kind of more kind like this type of like writing about um, theories of like aesthetic um, in in poetry for the class to like read as homework, <laughs> <laughs> and then talk about the next class. <laughs> and I brought in these fucking 20 page packets for everyone <laughs> and they were so mad at me and I deserved to be mad at uh, but I don't know I, I don't know I thought it ended, it ended up being a cool conversation I don't think yeah. I actually like read the packet <laughs> I like that I think but... in that moment you're both cool and weird oh yeah in the setting right and, socially weird yeah and not popular and not popular <laughs> um Especially because what I, like a nerd, was about to say is like, one thing I love about this essay is that it's pretty short. But, <laughs> um, and I was just going to appreciate that she put all her like aesthetic credo into this great short essay. Yeah. But then your story was about how it was like well, too fucking long for that setting. It was, it was, I mean, yeah. I mean, it was, um, 
I, I made a I made a decision between reading the room and committing yeah. to a particular yeah. <laughs> um, not bit like I believed in it it wasn't a joke you know but and I was like no I'm gonna, I'm gonna commit to this and I'm going to uh, I guess I'm gonna assign <laughs> a bunch of my friends uh, this homework um, but I mean you know whatever who cares you know the people who needed to read it read it and we had a nice conversation and people who didn't didn't and um, that was fine. That's what it was for, you know. That's language poetry, I guess. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> uh, we really are. Um, we're all. We're living the questions. <laughs> yeah. The world is. The world is in it. The world is in our thing. Well, I guess we should go. We'll go talk to Rebecca. Let's talk to Rebecca. This is Hillary. Um, welcome to Index for Continuance. I'm here with Zach Pekka. Hello. And Rebecca Wolf. Hi. So Rebecca, we have some questions for you today. Um, and I want to start by going a little bit back in time, in particular to the 90s, <laughs> which is <laughs> a time I feel like I really want to talk about lately. Um, and I guess I'm not alone. We're in like a cultural moment of returning to the 90s. No, so, I really wish that I had written my 90s memoir that I was planning like 10 years ago already. Because I feel like yeah. it's been, you know, on on the right. We might still be we might still be peaking. Like you maybe could still sell it bang. Well, you're saying we haven't peaked. <laughs> <laughs> I hope our interest in the '90s haven't. Been. Well, that's maybe, maybe we'll figure that out today. <laughs> yeah. Where are we in the upswing? Um, yeah. So I guess I wanted to talk about like the context in which you started Fence um, and look back on that time, and then maybe talk together about like how the scenes and vibes and like ethos of the nineties was maybe part of that or informed it. Um, and I know Fence's origin story has been written about and talked about plenty over um, the past 20 plus years, but I thought I'd just kind of offer a quick summary and then um, welcome you to add on to it or um, depart from it or elaborate. However, um, cause I know some folks might be new to this kind of vein of literary history. Um, so in its foundational years, in like the late 90s, early 2000s, I, I would say like the aim of Fence, the journal, and then the press Fence Books was to like fill a gap and open like a cross-pollinating, hybridizing space between the two camps that structured the poetry world of that era. And I'm going to quote a little bit from an essay that's on Fence's website, um, which maybe is in your words. <laughs> um, so one of those camps could be roughly defined as a uh, quote, Poets dedicated to building on tradition and narrative, prioritizing accessibility and communion with readers, end quote. And the other camp included, quote, poets who wanted to break from tradition, from the comfort of the familiar, and provide challenging encounters with and about language for readers, end quote. Interesting. Well, so I just, um, so those are not my words. Those are, I'm guessing the words of the, um, one of the new fence editors who have done like a great job of kind of trying to drag forward into today's um, parlance, I guess. Yeah. Um, some of the instigating feelings that I was having at the time of starting fence. And it's, it is funny though, there's always been this difficulty in expressing the fact that the, the primary like goal for me um, was not 
to try to kind of like mash up these two things, you know, polar, polar things, but rather to identify the work that was already mm -hmm. happening that was neither of those things. I originally <laughs> was sort of like, it's weird. It's just weird work. And, and so the very sort of like apolitical nature of that description was then problematic. And, and so anyways, but what it meant to me at the time was um, that I just was aware that there were poets specifically, but also other kinds of writers that were like not participating in these um, in these more comfortable zones, either aesthetically or socially. I think that the social creation or production of um, like these essentially like markets <laughs> of style or markets of ideas in poetry is the place that I personally was like most dedicated to kind of um, trying to disrupt so that's that's just my like clarification of because the the sort of idea that there was like there definitely was the mains what we called mainstream poetry at the time mainstream writing that was like very like you know uh workshop type work that had been very very like popularized in the late 80s and early 90s and then there was the sort of um closed world of like experimental post-language and language writing that was very highly socialized mm -hmm. so those were those worlds that I encountered when I was like thinking up fence I was like wait a minute I don't see in either of these places like any of the really like awesome poems that I see when I read like some of the work that I'm seeing just in workshop even like, so it was like Kathy Wagner, for example. No, thank you. Um, that helps speak to some, cause I, you know, when I've heard you talk about, um, this era and the impulse to found fence before I felt, um, you know, also felt like it, it had to do with, you know, what, with worlds, right. With that question of like a social worlds or markets or the types of presses or magazines that existed and what wasn't being published in them. So it's, um, that is like an aesthetic question, but it's also very much like a social political question, you know, like, um, and I, I like your use of the word weird, which I think <laughs> is like, I think, it's powerful. It's a powerful word. word. Uh, we talked to Daniel Dutton of the Dorothy project, um, for the same, you know, podcast project. And, you know, she kind of landed on that word as well. And was like, I think, I would, you know, I'd say Dorothy, it's just weird books. It's weird books, you know? And I, I really liked that. Cause it's like, I mean, it, in terms of describing a, a project that wants to refuse some, um, kind of dominant aesthetic ideologies that are like happening at a certain time, it's nice to pick a word that's like deliberately like a little bit vague um, and like is kind of insisting on being sort of flexible and broad and, and vague, right? Like you can't say exactly what it is. I don't know. So I, I appreciate that. Um, no, that's cool. It's yeah, it, um, it does. And it also kind of like um, waves at the, the whole like world of the weird like the weird sisters, you know, like, yeah. like uncanny or unheimlich or like uncanny Valley or, 
um, all of the that kind of thing too. And but you know, it's funny. I have to refresh my memory. What it really was like taken to task, basically as being um, so non-committal. You know, mm-hmm. a non-committal way to try to, which it is. It is non-committal. So yeah, yeah. I like that word weird too for um, maybe for projects run by women because I feel like it's a quality that it's not terribly welcome in women. <laughs> you know, like really, we're really not supposed to be too weird. Um, so, uh, so, okay. I'm going to make a connection to the nineties, like threatened. Um, <laughs> I guess I was thinking about, um, you know, that those sorts of scenes and dreams, particularly around like indie art or like, you know, indie music, indie recording, like kind of the indie values that are happening at that time. Um, you know, with this kind of more overt, idea of resisting corporate dominance across like the art world, the music world, the literary world. So I was thinking about Fence has always been very indie. And, uh, and I think, um, yeah. even though like independent, um, presses or entities can kind of get recast as, as institutions in some way over time, maybe because they've lasted a while mm-hmm. they've it's gained relevance. <laughs> yeah. They gained some kind of power or status or some forms of institutional support or something. So the indie, like, um, people's idea around that word maybe shifts, even though the, I mean, that's, yeah. Yeah. So I think that, I mean, what I see as the, um, like the evolution or the, um, birth of indie came, came out of like a sort of an, un, a relatively unexamined, um, thing called cool, like there was this thing that people of my generation grew up with that was like an a priori concept in the world which was that some things were cool Mm -hmm. and some things were not and that like and and many of the things that fell under into the category of coolness would also be able to be described as being um like as being harmonious mm-hmm. in some way or sort of um like uh um non-combative like in some ways um well well actually I'm sort of jumping ahead to a different part of what I've been thinking about about coolness as a as a feature but like you know there's this um phrase that people use all the time like um like that's not you're not that's not being cool like just be cool man mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like um and uh and so when when the indie thing arose like it arose out of kind of like assumptions that people had at the time that if you were going to be cool you were definitely not going to be participating in like some corporate structure mm-hmm like that just wouldn't be cool at all. <laughs> like there's literally no way that you could be cool if you were. And um, and so that's been a, I'm not sure what I'm saying is so hilariously obvious, but this was a, I feel like this is a lost perception in younger people or some younger, like in the mass culture, like it's essentially disappeared that you sort of can't, be cool at the same time as you um 
develop products that are intended to be sold to as many people as possible. Mm -hmm. And so, so indie, like independent concepts, ideas, you know, I mean, and that's where it, I think like the nineties um, problems also arise because it comes out of, of course, like individualism and, and like um, the idea that, you know, you're going to be original and mm -hmm. make up something by yourself um, that is, you know, that has like authenticity all these sort of buzzwords of like art that is independently produced um and if you see where and what I mean yeah yeah I I love that gloss on cool and the changing <laughs> and I think we had a I think we had a conversation about this once um you know I, I reflect a lot on the word cool because you know, I came into all of these Indian small press spheres and I was like, but the thing about me is I've never been cool. So what's my role here? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that was like a personal journey, but I think, you know, I think it's certainly but then true. you realized at some point that you're the kind of cool, that's the not cool kind of cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and maybe we'll post along with this episode. There's like one poem by Mark Leidner called what's cool changes that I think <laughs> get into all of this um and how about holding on to the idea of the cool is also a definition of the uncool <laughs> right right yeah no, there's always that too like yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> I really I like, like oh I just sorry I, I just really like that like the index so far is just it's like cool weird <laughs> <laughs> you know like all these other ones we've been like we should define AWP. We should define, you know, <laughs> yeah. like we should, oh, we should talk about like what experimental means. And this is like cool, weird. And like, <laughs> yeah, we're like, like even in the moment we're having like trouble holding on to, um, but sorry, Hillary, you had a, you were going somewhere. No, I was going to uh, like, I think that like defining cool and weird underlies all the questions of AWP and, and the experimental or something. So yeah. I feel like Rebecca, you spoke to, you know, my question was sort of about that change that you just touched on, which is, um, you know, obviously we're speaking like broadly, but like uh, starting in a moment where, um, you know, like coolness and independence are a driving force, a sense of um, not belonging to corporate structures or needing to sort of establish one's independence from them as an artist or a writer or a musician versus, you know, kind of moving through, you know, a few decades into a, a larger present in which that isn't really seen as the same kind of motivation or value set, right? Maybe people feel more, um, whether it's comfortable or, um, you know, empowered by affiliations with corporate, you know, they feel like that yeah. could be useful as a platform, right? Um, and that, or maybe that could do some things for them. Maybe people feel like indie scenes didn't include them. And like, right. so I mean, like, why would, you know, why would they have that set of values? Right. And um, that's, I think that's a very important thing just to like uh, highlight is that, of course, I mean, I hear this all the time is like, right, but I need security and security mm -hmm. is provided at this time by like a corporate environment that's you know yeah yeah and that there's a way we could make use of it and it's like individualism comes in sort of on uh, in both of those moments you know in one sense as you're talking about in this maybe overemphasis on individual 
identity originality kind of like, you know, um, and then in a different way now about kind of being a brand um, or having the focus be still on the individual, you know, creator, um, you know, versus on like the community or, or collective endeavor that's, that's producing the work in some ways. So I guess, yeah. I, um, it is I mean, not so funny. I mean, I'm sorry. I, again, sorry. any, anytime I say anything that's like ridiculously obvious, feel free to just <laughs> eliminate it from our discourse, but, um, but you know, it's just so hilarious that things could have flopped to the extent that for somebody to be sort of, um, brand, brand minded about their own, like, um, their own production, I guess, um, is the exact opposite of like what an artist typically would be trying to do, which would be to not continue to produce the same mm -hmm. thing over and over to not necessarily be identifiable by their, by, by anything in particular, but then that's like, then I, you know, then you're talking about like Neil Young and all the flops of his career <laughs> and like how he, he's just like, no, I'm going to make a different album every time. And then it's like, yeah, but mm -hmm. that's not who you, that's not what's, um, what people love you for anyway, yeah. you know, so, but br I, I don't know that much about brand concepts in general. Um, but I've had some very infuriating and puzzling conversations with people about them, about it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's something as, you know, as small presses that we uh, come up against in different ways because you both, like, I would love to have, and now I'm sidebarring from my own question, but we'll hook it back in. Um, like, uh, you know, we'd love to have more of a kind of readership or response that did recognize the role of the press as kind of this organizing thing um and a place where different sort of aesthetics and politics were gathering and happening and that if people liked one book we publish maybe they'd like to get the next book we publish you know like yeah, yeah. like that would that would be great um but at the same time we're not doing the brand thing like the the next book we publish might be quite different actually um right so it's not going to um fill that same role where it it you know it's not an apple product where it will look the same and, and um, interface <laughs> with the rest of your, your products, uh, you know, from that brand, like it, it would instead be about some kind of more freewheeling conversation or just like an interest or, you know, like loose yeah. trust in someone's taste or a press's well, taste exactly. or some kind of process. Yeah, exactly. And right. And so with fence, just to bring it back to fence, I mean, that was always a complete conundrum of of the the editorial policy because with the books like um there was every there was never any chance that anything could be trusted by a reader other than that it would be like weird and and interesting like weird mm -hmm. and possibly cool and cool to read um but look, it's been in, like funny. I mean, I think at a certain point, maybe about, I don't know, six or seven years in when I was publishing like a lot of books a year, um, I started to hear from people like in a sort of a fond um, irritation kind of way, like you publish some stuff that's just really not that great. Like, I don't like that. 
you know, and it would sort of be like, well, maybe that's because like my main goal is to find work that is not um, like, like it's essentially just like, there's like a, you know, it's like when you put your thumb on a bead of mercury and it escapes you, like that's, um, that's the quality of like the books that I chose to publish all along is sort of like, oh, right, this is a really interesting, weird manuscript for any number of different reasons. And none of those reasons might overlap with the last book that I published. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like maybe I should like acknowledge in this conversation that I have uh, a sense author. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I was just thinking, you know, cause like, um, my, my book, strawberry fields, which won the fence modern prize and prose. And at that time, I think there had just been one other book published in that series, which was a Tessa Moshbeg's, uh, McGlue. Is that right? right? Yeah. And I remember like, I had this like wonderful moment of folly as a writer where I was like, oh, maybe then my books will just blow up like hers. <laughs> and then I right. was like, oh, there's no way. Cause these both are really weird books and they're really weird in a different way. <laughs> they're just like not overlapping weirdness. Um, and then I was like kind of happy again, you know, I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> I mean, back to yeah. branding. If I had been more branding minded, I would have placed a huge emphasis on kind of like making, you know, I would have put marketing dollars into like a campaign about emphasizing like fence you know, fence books, you never know what you're going to find here, but it'll <laughs> definitely make you into a cooler person. If you read <laughs> books, like, you know, something like that. <laughs> yeah. Not that. Could um, I, um, Hey, yeah, right. You're, you're both fence people now. L- let me, let me interview you both. Um, <laughs> what, uh, I want to, okay. So since we have like a, an anchor or like a, a little handhold for this, um, I want, are you saying talk- that we're rambling? Is that what you're saying? No. <laughs> Not at all. I'm saying that now I have a way of asking a question that <laughs> I've been like slowly, like, I don't know, stewing over here. Um, but, uh, and it's, you know, it's like toward very much like in like the uh, obvious arena, which is a fun place to, to be in. Uh, so like weird. Uh, I, I, I guess I just want to like talk about weird you know, like, um, I love the word weird. I love the way it's being used. I like, I like it. Like, I like cool. It's really cool. It's also weird. Um, but like, you know, it's interesting. It, like, it seems as though the the weirdness that you as an editor or that fence as a press is drawn toward in work maybe has something to do with, um, like a kind of instability or a kind of like change or um, fluidity, uh, not to like say like formally necessarily or anything like that, um, or like beyond variety, right? Um, Like it seems to me like this use of weird is maybe implying something of like the unstable or like chaotic or, you know, because the you know yeah the stuff that's too weird to be like hyper marketable is also difficult sometimes you know mm-hmm. um and i guess like you know you, we could use uh hillary's book as an example since it came up or we could just talk like even more 
um, generally, but I'd be curious, uh, Rebecca, to, to, to hear you put like a finer point on weird, like what is weird really in, in writing? And it's, it's a horrible question, right? Like I would hate to be asked that, well, but I'm so I've curious. Been avoiding for 25 years, <laughs> finally. No. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, and, no. and, and Hillary, maybe like maybe you uh, from the other side of it, right? Because like having had a book that came out right through the press that values the weird and the cool. Um, what you know? How do you how do you see it? Yeah. So um, the weird. I used to try to talk about it in terms of sort of the quotient. Um, available in the work of uh, like you could call it like self-determination or like idiosyncrasy that was one way I used to try to talk about it like um, how much when I'm reading this work does it feel to me as though this writer is really driven and, and driven by and allowing themselves to be driven by something that like does not <laughs> directly relate to something that they recently read, mm-hmm. for example. Now that is, I mean, I'm I, like, the history of Fence has been so embattled and my own sort of like editorial statements over the years have been so challenged that, and and I'm of that mind where like, I'm I'm always like, listening to my criticisms you know so so I feel like I have to say at that point that that original like way that I used to try to describe what is weird um I came to understand that part of where I got that was just that I am like an obstinately and sometimes ludicrously um like uh denying person of of my context as a writer and as a person in general. Like, I just like, didn't really ever adhere to any context in literature for my own writing. And so when I, so I'm usually looking at like, so, so when I'm reading manuscripts or whatever submissions that are very clearly just like, oh, right. They've been reading a lot of X, a lot of Y. Like they really value that particular tradition and that's what they're doing in some clear way, whether they know it or not. Like, I'm not interested in that, you know? However, that doesn't mean that there isn't plenty of times where I may have just like not understood like, oh, this writer, you know, uh, cherishes this particular lineage and tradition and is working in it in a way that like is totally acknowledged by them and is part of that tradition like for example the whole sort of like coterie like post New York school scene where like these writers like adore each other in person you know like they like hang out and they and that's part of their aesthetic and their ethos and their everything um, I just was like blind to that at the beginning of Fence. I didn't even know it existed, honestly. I was not, you know. So so the value of that as a capacity of a writer to like be dwelling in community and collaborating and all that kind of stuff. I was like, what is that? That's, that's unoriginal. 
Like that was I just really basically like wanted writers to like spring from the forehead of Zeus kind of thing. So once I figured out that that wasn't sustainable, um, <laughs> then I was like, okay, so what is weird now? Weird is like, um, you know, weird. Weird started to kind of like grow tentacles for me in the, I would say the mid 2000s and become like, I did start to, you know, become very acutely aware of like queerness or of um, like the expressions of um, expressions of like, I don't know, emotional intensity or just all the different ways that things can be weird, but I, but still, and it also became much more about the editorial process with the group of editors that Fence acquired over the years. Like at the beginning, it was a pretty small group and I was often the final arbiter of what got into the magazine. And then um, over the years, there was a much bigger process and group. And like, so then the weirdness became much more about the mixture of our individual tastes and like how we worked with each other and bringing different, like attachments basically to the process. And that was always really weird and interesting for me to observe, like to be like, oh my God, these people are so different from how I read poetry and, you know, just understanding each other. And that was all, that was where the, that was like the weirdness in the special sauce. But, <laughs> but then for the books, which I did retain much more like editorial control over, then it just became often like trying to find something that really just didn't seem like something that I'd read like 25 of in the, in the pile, you know, mm -hmm. and that was great. <laughs> so. Cool. That's, that's great. That's a totally satisfying answer. I don't know. Yeah. That, I mean, yeah. I mean, it, it makes sense that, you know, it's such a, like we said, sort of vague and like, you know, potentially uh, capacious word could have multiple definitions at any given time. Um, yeah, I don't know. Hillary, how do you how do you feel about that? Does that check does that check out as an author, as a fence it, author? <laughs> it really, it really checks out. I, I mean, I cool. I love that word idiosyncrasy and the sense that um, you know, weirdness always brings with it like a little bit of like shame or exposure, you know, a sense that someone like saw you as you really were, you know, instead of in your more polished uh, or like presented form. And I think that, I mean, first, that sounds like a really great quality in an artwork, you know, <laughs> to be like that, that there was something, you know, that people can find a way to expose something. So, um, like so idiosyncratic, so personal and individual, but also that that moment or feeling or, or whatever it is, a type of speech or artwork often then is very like politically charged or has a way that it is really um, social um, or is making a kind of energy happen. Um, and when I think about, I mean, I was like, you know, when you accepted my novel, that novel had been rejected by, I think everyone, in the world, <laughs> like, um, like everyone, everyone had waited. And, and I'll just say like the weird quality of your work, not to um, put you on the spot here, but is it's like calm, you know, 
like you're addressing like agony, um, destruction, despair, like murder, toxicity, global dysfunctionality. Like you're addressing all this, but with this like calm, you know, in the form and in the observations and everything that like is, you know, it's kind of like chilling or something. So, and I can imagine a lot of publishers just being like, well, this is fascinating stuff and like beautifully written, but it's like, um, you know, where's the kind of like sensational, where's the mm -hmm. sensation of, of um, you know, where's the hook gonna be that we can like sell it on? Like, this is gonna keep you on the edge of your seat, which ridiculously is, um, is like what many editors and publishers are gonna be like wanting. Yeah, and I'll, um, I mean, thank you for that. It's also like, and also in terms of those subjects, I think people look for a certain like stable sentimentalizing form, you know, where like everyone's gonna kind of feel the right thing and there'll be this sort of sentimental structure that will make it seem as though we're closer to these events, but actually like, I think Eric, but this is my, I guess, argument as I was writing that particular book is like, keeps us further away, you know, because yeah. it's um, so limiting and sentimentalizing. And also like the energy is flowing back toward, toward the reader um, kind of being inter entertained or sort of soothed or uh, morally stabilized rather than having them feel more destabilized. I mean, that was what I was thinking about at, at the time. Um, and and I was very interested in really refusing a lot of forms of development, you know, of like, well, I, I don't trust how novel develops. I don't trust this. I don't, you know, so, and maybe that it's like, I liked your, your use of the word obstinate, um, you know, that way, like, as we are writers and editors are kind of continuing to do this work, like we find those little, um, like walls in the self that are very interesting <laughs> of obstinacy or the, the thing. Um, I mean, for me, I find that kind of like, forms of refusal or even like bits of rage, very motivating, you know, like, um, you know, a lot of my projects are, are born out of like really wanting to refuse to do something, um, and seeing what happened <laughs> and, or like being upset about something that is happening in publishing, um, and wanting to like be determined to try to do a different thing. Um, and so I wanted to ask you about like refusal and rage. I mean, as I get get a little older. Sometimes I'm like, Oh, I should calm down. Like I should be cool. <laughs> like, I, should stop. <laughs> I should stop like, or I should find another way to, to energize myself rather than, but I was like, well, that way works a lot. So I, I kind of wanted to ask you about maybe the, the role, if you have, if there's a role of kind of refusal or obstinacy, or even a little bit of rage in your approach to editing, and maybe like are there things you were mad about in the early years of fence that you're kind of not mad about anymore? <laughs> and are there things you're still mad about that still kind of fire you up? Totally. I mean, yes, to answer to all of those questions. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I've always thought about it as like, I have a reformer impulse. Like I'm a reformer. That's, you know, that, and that operates in like, not just my editing um, life, but it's, um, so when, so the, I don't know about refusal. I don't think there's a refusal for me. Mm -hmm. Um, it's more like, 
I see that there is something dreadfully wrong here and I see how to fix it. And I'm going to do that. <laughs> um, and so with, uh, you know, with the publishing world at the time, it just, there were so many things wrong with like literary magazine world. Oh my God. Just, um, you know, and that, and so many that were actually really easy to fix, <laughs> not to take so much credit, but like, I mean, there was like a little, you know, zeitgeist happening at that time in literary magazine publishing, but it was definitely, um, you know, there were things that were easy to address and change. And then there were things that were stubbornly refusing to change. And and at this point, I ascribe most of those stubbornnesses to essentially just like capitalism. It's like, oops, like you can't, you can't, um, you can't fix the distribution system, for example, like, or it's, or so far, not anything that I try, I mean, that was a big um, driving like concern for me at the beginning of, um, doing a literary journal mm -hmm. because it was so clear that if if part part like I had the total fantasy that actually I was going to popularize like the weird in poetry you know um and and that someday soon like the general reader was going to be more become more familiar with sort of um like what was going on in in the minds of poets <laughs> and and uh that you know never worked out um <laughs> and like and and you know sure like oh well lots of people buy poetry books now but it's like they're not they're still not buying like books of poetry that are kind of like working outside of um you know that are that are like uh relating directly to sort of like the art form of poetry you know what I mean that's so so like uh yeah so rage I don't know I know I never had rage or refusal but I had I had sort of a like what this is ridiculous <laughs> like all all these things are just completely dysfunctional and so um yeah and, and you know at a certain point about I don't know 10 years ago or so I started to look around and realize like okay Fence made some reforms definitely in certain kinds of um in some areas but some of those like had unintended consequences um that are not really what I think has worked out that great namely um like the professional like I feel like Fence really contributed to the whole sort of like professionalization of creative writing world and and small press publishing world uh in ways that some ways that are good and some ways that are not good um and then um you know definitely failed to kind of um I feel like Fence, in a way, I don't know, failed to make like an actual intervention in consciousness around um, uh, I don't know, 
there was, a, <laughs> I have to think about that a little more. Yeah. But there was some, there was something I was hoping to do. It had to do with, honestly, I think probably the biggest failure, <laughs> which is something that I'm still mad about or, or that I wish I could fix is, um, has to do with like the social, which actually that's like the hilarious part because of course, social media came around mm -hmm. and then everything became about social interaction and social connectivity and like, um, squashed whatever hopes I might've had of trying to dismantle some of those like networks of how does work get chosen, get to be seen, get to be known, you know, all of that. Like who gets the job, who gets the mm -hmm. um, prize, all of that stuff, which I was passionate about at a long time ago. And at this point, I basically don't care. That is the truth because I'm pretty disengaged from the whole like creative writing industry thing. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. I mean, social, I feel like social media and obviously this is a, a larger topic, but you know, when it arose, we had that promise of the long tail or the diversification of tastes and that people would be able to, you know, like many, many individual creators would be able to be supported by small groups of fans. Um, and of course that's not how the models and algorithms and platforms have played out quite deliberately, right? They, there's an even bigger gap between sort of the haves and haves nots or the celebrities in any area right. and the rest of us as users um, yeah. on those sites. Uh, and so that promise of sort of more horizontal, equally flowing, like mutual networks has really not um, panned out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it becomes less and less like as far as I know, or as far as I see, like the the social media around creative writing, poetry, fiction, whatever, becomes less and less about the actual work. And you know, you see like memes about jokes about like people talking about how much they love a book versus actually reading the book, you know, things like that. And it's just like I'm like, wow, that's not funny. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Zach, do you want to ask the next question? Or I, I would love to. <laughs> I realized it connected. <laughs> no, yeah, no, that's that's great. Yeah. Okay. This is related. It's all related. Um, <laughs> no, but I think it, I mean I think it is in a in a certain way, especially as we think about um, I don't know, like there's a it's not the most fun thing to talk about, but like I am interested in uh the kind of like questions of uh because it is like a logistical question i think um for a press or a journal um to have like a sort of like brand or a voice or you know like um all of this like social media stuff that is fully vapid right like <laughs> also over time comes to be like a um a, a kind of brand maybe or like a vibe or like that's a way of <laughs> then like being in um the world you know um the literary world um but like something that i've always like something i've always enjoyed about fence right um <laughs> it's like and it's, maybe it's just like i don't know if this speaks to like just what a dork i am or what but um are like the emails <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> um you know what i mean um and and particularly be because they uh they are kind of like um 
I mean, we're getting into like cool and cool territory real fast, but mm-hmm. they're sort of like unbranded, right? Um, in this way that uh, not just like is could maybe be read as like anti-professional or something, but is like is very individual and is like very like personal, right? Like um, to read that, to interact with that communication about like what the press is doing or new books that are coming out or even just you know things that become just more kind of like observational (laughs) you know um and are often like very funny very interesting like very weird um you know for me like that's such a uh uh, you know but like before I had ever read a fence book right like I interacted with that and was like oh well this seems cool (laughs) you know like this is different like this is exciting and also like who is this person <laughs> that's like seems I to be know. that's the problem <laughs> that's the problem I'm gonna just have to write you emails <laughs> I love emails I know um <laughs> I mean but... often we would read I feel like Zach and I would read defense email and then talk about it and be like oh this yeah. is great <laughs> yeah, anyway yeah so. no we'd be like hanging out in the poetry center like oh did you see the fence email today <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like... but um but just to say right like that um in its way you know, we could say that's like a brand or that's a political choice or it's an aesthetic move or whatever. It's just what happened that day. Um, but like over time, like it it kind of accretes into something. And I, I, I want to say that the choice to do that in that way, right, to sort of speak on behalf of a press um, as a person, you know, has meaning to it, right? Like that, that, that is a, a to, to speak personally like that, right? Um, but wait, what at, if it's the only way I know how to talk? Well, sure. And and it can be, right? But I'm I'm curious about like <laughs> um the I don't know, just thinking about like this, like the role of the personal, right? And where it like sort of entwines or gets like, you know, conflated with the political. I mean, which is yeah. it's so silly to even like talk about, right? Because it's, it's like though. obviously it's they're not silly not to separate. me. It's <laughs> yeah. not silly to me. I mean, it's it's still a grinding and daily question to me like Mm -hmm. like what is this I mean and and I actually had a super interesting conversation yesterday with my housemate about why so many people choose to not have a public life you know like um in certain ways uh, like a literally like public service life, you know, which to mm-hmm. me is, goes, it's all, it's almost like there's a triad for me of the personal art person, the, the public art person and the public um, service person, you know, mm-hmm. like that, like, I feel like all of that, um, if, if that, like triangulation with that I think is within everyone who's essentially like an artist, you know, could be like put in better relationship with each other, with itself, mm-hmm. then essentially like we would have a much more functional public world. Mm-hmm. Like, because, and I, I, it sounds like what I'm saying is like, I wish everyone was a public intellectual or something like that, but that's not what I'm <laughs> saying. It's more like, um, you know, well, and I'll, okay, now I'm going to take this right back to the 90s, because it's like, essentially, it's about like neoliberalism and hyper individualism, too, because and confessional poetry and confessionalism, 
in general, like just, you know, I came of age in like a time where um, if you were, if you were of a certain, I mean, this is a privileged position too, right? Like um, the position of being, having the, the sort of like um, conviction that it's okay to talk about oneself all the time and that, and, and or to think about oneself all the time. <laughs> and, and that that will somehow translate if you do it well enough like that will translate into something that is of value or like universal um, meaning accrual for others, you know? And like, I was always fascinated with this about myself as a younger person. I was like, why is it that I feel like um, I can use my experience, you know, to kind of like, um, be exemplary. I have I have a poem that's never been published. Um, it, that's called um, an exemplary life, <laughs> and it's like just try. I'm just trying to like riff on the different kind. Like vicars are exemplary, right? <laughs> mm. <laughs> or there are other kinds of example. But anyway, so these emails, um, like. I just have a problem actually where I literally don't know how to talk about things without talking about myself. Mm. I'm not, I never learned how, like I was a really bizarre and highly idiosyncratic student in college. And my, I created my own major, which was bachelor's degree with an individual concentration in poetry and self-consciousness. That was my major. And I graduated with it. Like I had, to, I had to like convince, you know, a team of um, college professors that this was a valid thing. And some of them were like, you're not actually like producing any scholarship because <laughs> I was just basically writing poems and then reading books and talking about how they related to my life. So I was like an early form of the kind of messed up, narrow sort of like, um, Thing that you see in students now where they they don't know how to like talk about anything that's not relatable about something they only know how to make an argument in a paper about a book by talking about like how it relates to their life you know what I mean yeah and so I did this in like 1985 because I pretty much just had a sort of disorder <laughs> in which I felt that um, everything related back to me. You could think of it as like a, you know, self-referential mania of some yeah. sort. Anyways, luckily I'm a decent writer. And so when I write these kinds of, um, you know, when I string together these observations or whatever they are, like for fence, you know, what, I mean, it was kind of hilarious because when blogging started and when all of the, um, opportunities for people to sort of um you know <laughs> constantly present themselves started I was like oh my god this is perfect for me I'm gonna love this because this is what I want to do all the time is explain exactly what I'm thinking about everything all the time and then strangely I found that when it was totally doable and people would even pay you for it I was like no longer interested in it and mm -hmm. so and so then um, 
then the fence emails became just like one small outlet for that for me. However, I was horrified when I was informed by several close friends that I was creating a really good brand. <laughs> and right. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Like I have, I have not um, intended to brand fence or br be a brand or have a brand. And like, this is just actually a disorder that I have. <laughs> <laughs> but it is a little bit like I mean that is that is funny uh because uh, yeah I think I, I don't know it's kind of what I, what I meant that like it, it it's almost like the cool uncool thing it almost like comes back around again right like doing the uh just you know by virtue of like continuing to do it it like well that becomes the it's part of the fence brand um well but that's just I have to say that is just the idiocy of brand as a concept like right, yeah. you know what I mean it's like mm -hmm. Duh. So like, you mean if something is itself, then that's its brand? Like, Well, yeah, totally. I mean, we're, we're all the CEO of our own company right. yeah, all yeah. the time. But, um, but like, I'm, I'm curious about how like, um, so I, I mean, <laughs> you're saying you have a disorder, um, but like, uh, but whatever it is, like, um, I wonder like at what point, I mean, I don't know, like, like at what point you sort of like just like decided to like do it that way right or and and I understand like when you saw that it worked or were told that by others that it was like working towards some like business end it became like you know well all right let's I let's... never thought I really literally never thought about it as a business tool I did hear as as years went by and I was doing that I definitely started to hear more and more like oh my God, I love your emails. Like, so great. I love getting your emails. Like I, you know, usually if I was sending out an email, I would get like, you know, a couple of responses that would be like, your emails are the only emails I like to read or things like that. And so then I knew like, okay, this is good, you know, yeah. but what that meant to me actually was something more along the lines of like, oh, cool. I'm still a writer. <laughs> like at some point I can actually write something yeah. like, that's really what that meant to me. I wasn't thinking like, this is good for fence, you know, right. um, I have worried um, about how the shift to like a different, you know, different editors, different, but that's always been the problem with fence is like, how much is fence like just um, functional or whatever, because it is so closely, has been always so closely associated with me as the editor, but that's just a, thing that any organization or any press faces yeah. shifting you know so um but yeah like um I guess that you know I I really approached those emails the way I approach writing anything really which is usually and actually that's what made it so challenging for me to be a public servant, <laughs> like a, like to be an elected official because I only know how to write, to speak, um, like essentially like hanging it on my experience. And that is a popular thing for politicians to do. They can be like, when I was a little boy, my, you know, there was a old lady on my block and she always hung out the window and said hello to me or whatever. And then like, you know, goes from there. But um, but 
I wanted to be more austere as a politician. And so I was, and that was a whole other experience of style and branding, <laughs> not branding, but yeah. I kind of, I want to, I want to follow up on that. Um, the idea of being a public person and branding and the professional um, and maybe drag gender into it <laughs> oh, yeah. um, or make gender visible in it. Because I was thinking, you know, you uh, in terms of like, okay, like the, you know, fence being closely associated with you and, um, and your leadership role there, you know, you were sort of a woman in public, right. Um, and being a public person as, as a woman. Um, and when I think about those questions for myself, I mean, first of all, the ways that it, it sometimes feels like gender makes itself present or visible in like, I was going to say in 2022, but I guess it's 2023. Um, fine. <laughs> uh, you know, in ways that feel completely, you know, like, I'm like, I cannot believe this. This feels like a seventies vibe or dynamic right now. Um, but here it is again, here we are. And also like a struggle to find um, a place to speak from that feels like a site of power as a woman writer or a woman editor or a public woman um, that isn't overly professionalized, right? Like that isn't about, um, having taken on the, uh, you know, the sort of trappings of CEO ship, um, and performing in them inauthentically. Um, and, you know, so I sort of want to talk about like ways that you found yourself thinking about gender and those roles over the years, whether it's in relation to yourself or to other questions of feminism, um, and, and literature and publishing, you know, when fans started, I feel like there weren't terribly many American presses led by women. Um, and also that the approach of being personal, um, means like, like, you know, I feel like people are going to receive that in ways that are gendered, um, or that fall along the, the expectations of gender. Right. And don't necessarily, you know, like hearing, a woman just like kind of speak directly and like joke and critique and change her mind and like take something back or like apologize for something or figure it out or like share it or like I you know like invite yeah. you to call on her landline you know like, yeah. um <laughs> like you know you it's it's like a very human way of being um when people have a bunch of expectations uh, often contradictory um and sort of hard to survive with about what <laughs> about how women should be or behave or like interact with them. Um, so I'm just, I guess I'm just like, okay, you've been a woman in public, personal and political ways for a couple of decades. Like, how's it going? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, geez. Um, I guess, you know, fence definitely has been a learning curve and, and uh, certainly for me, like the issues around gender um, were, they were kind of like a blank to me at the beginning. And I think this is because like, uh, I mean, it kind of goes back to the same sort of nineties thing in a way. Like, I don't know if you would remember, I don't, I don't think you do possibly remember this. What year were you born, Hillary? Uh, 1981. Okay, yeah, you don't know about this. There was like, there was like a whole, I mean, well, there was this really like painfully um, inaccurate trope uh, in at the time about sort of post-feminism, like that arose in, really it arose sort of in the early 90s, I guess. And the idea was 
And it was a really widespread idea that basically like feminism worked in the seventies, you know, like that whole thing had worked and women now were not no problem, like no problem, you know? And I, for whatever reasons, really um, kind of like believed that I, I, and possibly because I don't have an overly female like mind or something like that. Like I'm not particularly um, feeling my gender most of the time, which is not to say that I'm necessarily like gender fluid or anything, but it's just sort of like, it's not very uh, prominent in my, in my consciousness. (laughs) And so that allowed me to be pretty clueless about a lot of things. Um, And so it took me a long time to start to notice with doing, doing fence that there were certain kinds of experiences I was having that basically were gendered Um, and including like, um, you know, including people feeling, um, uh, what's the word, Um, people feeling that they could like come at me personally, you know, in like in public spaces, like that any, that critiques on fence could be personal. Although sometimes that was because I actually had personal relationships with people who were critiquing fence, but um, you know, or critiquing me, I guess, as editor. But yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know. It's been a funny, uh, like I actually, um, I think that possibly uh, me never getting a job is is a gendered thing. Like literally no institution has wanted to hire me. That could be possibly gendered. Um, what else? Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, I'm sure like a certain amount of, I think just in my life in general, all those qualities that you noticed, like I don't, um, you know, I I don't behave as uh, like many people expect somebody of my gender to behave <laughs> in various different ways uh, based on stereotypes and stuff. Um, you know, yeah, I'm sure I just, I get a lot of blowback, but I, but partially because, yeah, I, I haven't been um, worried about being a public figure, but then like more recently I did realize that that was actually like the trajectory of fence was the trajectory of me figuring out that I didn't want to be a public figure over like a very long period of time. It took me about, you know, I don't know, 12 years or something to, to notice that I disliked the things around um, being a public figure, especially um, like what I will call like sycophantic experiences, you know, like that's my least favorite part of having been the editor of Fence is just basically the, the baseline experience of never knowing if somebody wanted to talk to me or because they essentially wanted to be published you know like that's no fun 
and and it's not like it's sort of like a boohoo kind of situation but and it also is the flip side of what I actually did want which is I wanted the power of being a publisher like I wanted that power because I felt that that power was being misused in general in the world and so I wanted to and and I think that's not a commonly held like female perspective or whatever you know what I mean in like terms of the divine feminine that's like not necessarily like a power accruing um archetype <laughs> but um I don't know or maybe it is I don't really actually know that much about the divine feminine or it's like you know the whole like stereotypes of like the kind of more melting qualities more sort of like yeah but um yeah I think it's like when maybe when we want power, we're like Lady Macbeth or something. Um, you know, it's a little, it's more sinister mm-hmm. or monstrous. Uh, right. Well, people can, um, people can write in with their ideas, <laughs> the stereotypes yeah. of the power, the power hungry woman. Um, but it kind of connects. I wanted, you know, I wanted to also talk about like some material realities questions, which I think actually do connect to that, you know, question of, like power and the press or what we are able to do and also how we have to interact with kind of sites of cultural power in order to have a press, right? Like in order to like make things happen. And and you mentioned the um, kind of profound quandaries of distribution earlier, you know, that, that, um, Mm -hmm. you know, from, from the beginning days, depends into the present, you know, these questions of like how books get distributed and sold, um, right. Kind of plagues all of us. uh, And, you know, you'd know more about this, but it feels like small press books are even more kind of pushed out of, of the market now than that, like that's been increasing. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about that kind of those kind of money questions. Um, particularly cause I have this, you know, I have a memory, um, of hearing you talk at, I think it was like the 2013 and now festival, if that sounds like it could have happened in Boulder. Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 And you talked a little bit about money and fence and I felt like, you know, like whenever people do that and they speak openly and about like how, how some money stuff works at their press or their organization, people kind of don't want to hear it, you know, like the room is a little like scandalized, um, you know, because money is, it's like implicating, it's like dirty. People don't want to like know how that works and think about how it works and, and what sort of choices to make around it. Um, and I think about this too, because for Fences site, um, you know, you'd sort of, uh, published a couple pieces that Lucy Biederman and I wrote about catapult, um, and it's money, which is, you know, presumably, right. It's assumed, uh, through the Coke family, um, and the kind of presence of Coke money in indie literature. And I think, I think the, maybe the chronology of that is that Lucy and I wrote something and sent it. And then later you kind of in the middle of the economic crisis in the early days of the pandemic kind of wrote, you know, wrote me to think about a follow-up, um, <laughs> and like, what should we do with money like that? Uh, with the ill-gotten gains of the Cokes, like, is there an ethical way to spend that money if we had access to it, which um, uh, we do not, but like, if we did. So I guess I, I just wanted to like, ask kind of an open question about like money matters um, and funds and, you know, like y- you figured out how to fund it and, and run it all, all of those years, um, which means thinking about grants and nonprofit stuff and all the questions of arts organizations and the questions of the very slim profit margins on books um, Mm -hmm. and the sort of like negotiations and, and, or maybe compromises we all have to sort of make as we figure out what money is there and what is possible. Mm -hmm. Um, 
so I guess, yeah. Like what, is there anything that sort of surprised you about money matters at fence or that you sort of like sticks in your mind as you look back? Um, are there things that have changed over the years? Yeah. Well, I mean, a major thing that has changed with fence is that, um, the whole model of like, um, labor of love, uh, small press publishing is really over, mm-hmm. you know, or, or at least, um, I mean, I actually, I think it still, it still crops up. There's still always like people going like, you know what, I'm going to just publish books and it doesn't matter if I get paid. They, I mean, I, I've met a couple of new publishers recently and I've been like, Oh, <laughs> you're, but um, when, you know, but so uh, I did it for a really long time without getting paid. And that was sort of an, um, you know, a normal thing to do at the time. And so what's changed uh, is definitely the consciousness among younger people in general that they need to be paid for their labor. And, um, and you know, and so that then <clears throat> kind of necessitates that 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 those people have to engage with the like whole philanthropy world, um, the whole you know definitely the grant world, but also the donor world, and um, and that was that was really like the breaking point for me with fence um, was when I fully grokked like how much I did not want to be engaging with that world and and um and how fully required it would be if fence was going to be able to like um you know pay me or and pay anybody um and so or I should say that, I mean, yeah, so so finan- the finances of fence were always, I, I mean, I thought it was always really important to be like culturally mat- or, or like to be materialist about it, you know, to, to like expose distribution realities, like how many, and it also always was sort of astonishing to me that the equation that people like never wanted to kind of um attend to is is the one about if only people actually bought these books or or subscribed to this magazine mm-hmm. like we wouldn't need to do this stuff like it wouldn't be be an economy in which you have to get money from like donor type of people you know like they like we actually make something that you can purchase <laughs> and you know, so, um, so those numbers always have troubled me and still do to this day, like, um, but you don't want to shame people, <laughs> like, you don't want to shame your potential readership, um, you know, but at the same time, it's sort of like the, the, dis- the distinction between how many people like submit to prizes or like want to be published or whatever, but don't want to read the magazine or purchase it or subscribe to it or whatever so um so but yeah like yeah so that's 
sort of where I left it was like when I arrived at the certainty that I was not willing to be a fundraiser outside of writing grants. Like I was always happy to write grants, although not really happy, but like, you know, um, that seemed like relatively legit to me. But it's been interesting since I'm not doing that for fence anymore. Like I noticed that my actual, I have a pretty strong tendency to not be interested in supporting arts organizations with any of my own money. Like if I'm going to give money to something, it's going to be like a very direct aid kind of <laughs> organization. Like I'm like, I'll give money to like, or, or like, you know, just something much more um, like socially needy, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so that's part of my, also my disinclination to try to, you know, really be a, a great fundraiser for fence is that I think my heart was never in it in terms of making a case to people like why they should support the arts, you know, like in general. I sort of feel like um, that closed loop of like, oh, you philanthropists should support the arts because the arts brings like joy and magic to the world or like, you know, that kind of thing. Um, like that should, that sh ideally would be taken care of by the people who actually want to read this material, just like buying it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it goes against like, a lot of like the feelings we're trying to be in or what we're trying to do to be like, Oh, this, these books are like, they're instruments of something, you know what I mean? Like you should yeah. support the arts because these books do this thing. And you're like, well, I don't, I'm <laughs> not interested in, in that. Like, I don't want to say what yeah. they do, or I don't know what they do or what's interesting about them is that I can't say and will not like, um, and as yeah. a writer. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And, and that, and then also you if you're in that, if you're trying to make that line of argument, then it becomes so important. Like if your book wins a prize and then you can show the value of, of the book because it's been qualified by the world, you know what I mean? So then you get sucked into that whole world directly of like, I mean, I can't tell you, um, or I'm sure you have these conversations if you have to, if you're talking to a potential donor or something like that, you know, like, it's helpful to have these very visible markers of success of a book. And so then that's when your editorial mind gets instantly mm -hmm. polluted. <laughs> right. You're born. You kind of want to sign a couple things that could maybe do a little better. And then you're like, Oh no, like now I'm uh, in, you know, nineties problems. I'm selling out. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. you know, right, or exactly. it's like, it also, if we had more access to the wider market, I think we wouldn't really be in this position because as, as it is, it's like, we really do have to hand sell pretty, you know, almost every book. And that's just like, it's very tiring. We don't have, you know, the people we have access to um, are more limited. Whereas if we could just be reaching kind of random readers um, here and there and could move even just like a few hundred more copies of each title that way, that would be really different, you know? <laughs> um, 
I don't know. So I think too, I was like, I loved your um, metaphor earlier of, you know, pressing your thumb into like a droplet of mercury that scatters. And that's like, as a sort of like editorial model. And, you know, when I was picturing it, I was remembering, you know, my mom always telling me as a kid to be like, well, you can't eat that. Just remember you can't eat mercury. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> I was like, and I was like, yeah, that's kind of like, you know, when I wish you were worried you were going to eat mercury. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's very beautiful. Like, I don't know but right. if that was speaks to some habit I had as a child trying to, <laughs> trying to eat beautiful items. But you know, it was like, I was like, yeah, like there is a way with those books where you're like, well, you can't eat them, you know, <laughs> like, like they're not here to, to feed, um, Exactly. Yes, they're non-nutritive to some extent or something. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe a little poisonous in, that. It's good, mm-hmm. in a good way. Um, I think we have like maybe one more question. You've been so generous with your time um, and I'll send it over to Zach. For- <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, yeah. I'm glad, I'm glad you pointed out this sort of toxicity of mercury too, because I like, I like that also embedded in that metaphor is, you know, the sort of, maybe there's something a little, uh fatalistic happening <laughs> about I don't know really like holding like holding on to the weird or um I don't know if we're being romantic like fighting for it or trying to like make space for it or advocate mm-hmm. on its behalf or something like that um I mean you know that this is this podcast right it's called the index for continuance right so it's like in in addition to like the sort of material realities of small press uh, work, we're also interested in just sort of that really basic question of like, what keeps one going, you know, and I think is, you know, uh, inevitably, we arrive at versions of like rage, or antagonism, or, um, you know, certain sort of like negative, uh, um, you know, relationships to, uh, you know, culture or the world or whatever. Um, but, you know, also positive ones as well. Uh, and something that like often comes up is if we're like, you know, thinking about our more sort of like uh, <laughs> pro world um, uh, stance here um, is maybe like thinking a little about like collaboration, right? Um, you know, not, not just like, not only for like structural um, in a structural sense, thinking about like collectivity, but um, you know, the way in which like collaboration can be kind of vital for the continuance of a small press project. Uh, and, you know, we know that you've recently stepped back from some of your leadership roles at Fence. Other folks have stepped in. Um, it's interesting how, I don't know, I feel like in trying to cultivate this particular, like, like really particular uh almost like aesthetic sense or like set of values, right? Um, That's something like quite individual uh, or can be quite individual or something that even like benefits from like limited, uh, (laughs) you know, collaboration almost in this interesting way. But then at the same time, like there is a place in like a role for collaboration, right? Um, And I think we've just kind of like seen that uh, or just like through this conversation and like knowing what I know about the press and, you know, this sort of like, um, you know, that, that sort of dynamic between the individual and the collective and the way in which like collaboration works and maybe doesn't work, but is necessary um, in certain ways. So um, I'd just be curious to hear just how you think about that, those ideas and like how you think about collaboration in um, 
you know, like literary work, like when collaboration is like, what's the place for collaboration? You know, like when is it at its best? Yeah. I mean, I actually have an essay that I will write soon. Um, cool. that is that sort of tracks like all of my failed collaborations <laughs> um, because it has been kind of there, I've had a, a funny track record with it um, uh, which is to say that you know it it has not been it, it has not come naturally to me to collaborate um, and and um, I've really seen like the beauty of it with these new editors of fence because they're the two there's two new co-editors and they are born to collaborate they are like you know both like minds that um like really enjoy the bouncing off of each other and the and the um <clears throat> like corrections that happen and the you know the sort of like um minor conflict and then like you know how like muscle tears and grows stronger and all that kind of stuff um and and you know that's it's very good and it's what I would have wanted for fence like I you know I was looking for um some some way to give fence to somebody or you know create some new context for it for quite a while and I and um and so and collaboration is definitely like the best outcome I could have thought for it and they collaborate beautifully also with the genre editors you know there's much more <clears throat> like interactivity there and um so it's really really good and you know my hope is that it will just kind of like have this whole like long as they want to do it um other life basically and and so I um you know yeah I don't know I don't want to talk down about myself all the time but I'm I'm like pretty I'm pretty like um bossy or or something like that like not it's not easy for me to necessarily see things another way if I have already seen it one way um and and that's just been like a constant throughout my life and so um you know and sometimes that produ has produced like really good things and and really where I actually actively started to understand like the the ne necessity of collaboration was again when I was in office like you can't really do government um without um like arriving at consensus you know and I know that there's a difference between compromise and collaboration but like so for me as a like artist <laughs> it's not necessarily my chosen mode um and I will admit that I've I've um you know I got really um skeptical about collaboration when it became sort of a trend I'm always like just like it's like the the 90s the 90s thing again I'm like man everybody's doing it so it's not cool <laughs> <laughs> um but uh but there was such a like buzz of collaborative collaborative work happening in I want to say like the early 2000s early to mid 2000s like suddenly all poets wrote their books together and I was like 
well, that's cool. It's just simply not how I write. And it's like, you know, it just doesn't, um, it doesn't intrigue me like as a process for writing. Um, mm -hmm. But, but it's um, great for those who it does. And, um, you know, and I, I definitely see that it also obviously presses against like formally it pushes apart all sorts of confining models. Um, so that's great. Yeah. Yeah. But also I want to argue with you slightly because I feel like of course like editing is is collaborate, you know, and your work as an editor, you know, especially since I, you know, I was on the, the receiving end of it, right? Which yeah. is to um have someone in your book with you. Yes. Um, I love that kind of if that's collaboration, then I like it a lot that particular kind of collaboration but I have to say I think there's something about like editing you know that is for me at least it's it's back to that sort of like reformer impulse or something like I love fixing things mm -hmm. um and uh <clears throat> so it's like you know uh and being in a book with someone um, is is a it's not I mean editing a book getting into a book so that you can like rec make recommendations make suggestions query things get into that space is like such a different thing than actually sitting down with somebody to try to create something or mm -hmm. to um, you know. Um, I mean, essentially I collaborated with your book, not with you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know. I guess that's true. Yeah. 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 But it, I mean, it works so well and it's a way of like really understanding someone's project and knowing to intervene, you know, very precisely and being like, these are the spots that I will. Yeah. Um, and I love that. And that is like, really, I definitely will miss that, you know, and um, uh, that part of like what has been my yeah my my job my life um but I guess what I'm hoping is that I'll produce my own books and be able to collaborate with my own books <laughs> for a minute <laughs> um or something like that but yeah I don't know so Zach I don't know if I like got at what you were thinking about there but no, you did. I mean, I'm I'm just, you know, just curious about right, like how how we think about these things. Because I, I, I don't know, it, it strikes me that there is like a it, a balance or like a certain mix that always has to be kind of tended to between um, like highly individual sensibilities and sometimes like really specific. Uh, gripes you know <laughs> um in order to sort of have maybe like this this energy right or like this uh aesthetic or particularity of uh, opinion or idea or whatever it is and yet like there are also times at which um that just becomes like absolutely untenable right um and then like what stands in for that it's like well it's either like quitting <laughs> or <laughs> getting help <laughs> you know um not that there aren't like great presses that are effectively just one person doing everything. Not that that can't exist, but, um, you know, just as we like 
can figure out the ways in which we navigate. Um, and by we, I just mean like anyone who tries to do something, um, you know, some kind of small press literary work, like we navigate the material realities, like we probably eventually have to like develop a, a, a sense of that, right? Like what's what's individual, what's collective, whereas like, and yeah. then, you know, what and what does collaboration look like, right? Which like, maybe that's like the, the more nuanced thing. And like, yeah, I love the idea that the, the collaboration is with the, the book and not the author. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's, it's great. In the yeah. sense that, yeah, like um, it's not co-creation yeah. literally. I mean, it or it is, but it's like, it's, um, you know, you want to grant the artwork its independence from the author, or I do. Yeah. And, um, and, and I have to in order to, I feel like I always have had to do that in order to be a good editor because otherwise you're going to be like I don't want to hurt somebody's feelings or like what if this is really important to the writer like you know I don't want to be hampered in my goal towards giving that author the best like response that I can give you know so mm -hmm. but um oh also I just want to I have a poem um in like I think my I don't know fourth book or something called It All Ends in Resignation. And it's a poem about collaboration and such. Oh, so cool. it's funny. It's like, it's basically about how hard it is and how, cause for a while I used to say things about how I basically thought that like nothing could be done cooperatively, essentially. Like, mm. like any time that anything actually like, you know, I don't know, moved forward, it was because of um, there being, like, even if it says it's cooperative, really, there's usually one person who is taking on, you know, the bulk or the, you know, but I really did learn that that's actually not true. Like when I was working in politics and saw like, right, there's actually a process of, um, you know, it's a large, it's larger than just sort of like, I've got an idea and I'm gonna do it you know, mm -hmm. and then every, you can help me. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, thank you guys so much. Thank you. Of course, yeah, thank you. Thank you.